Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Tonight on this special edition of 60 Minutes Presents, Looking Toward the Future. Nine years of work, seven minutes of terror. He's talking about the descent and landing of the Perseverance rover on Mars. Execute entry, descent, and landing on her own. And there goes the descent stage. Big sigh of relief. I almost uh, collapsed over this console. Part of its mission, to drop off Ingenuity, a mini-helicopter that would take off and navigate in the Martian atmosphere, much to NASA's delight. So here's a little bit of a jump. I mean, that's incredible. (laughs) There's a lot of incredible things going on at Boston Dynamics. A cutting-edge robotics company... 60 Minutes has been trying to get inside of for years. This is inside Atlas's brain, and it shows its perception system. It's going to use that vision to adjust itself as it goes running over these blocks. You are in control. This is called an EVTOL, a clunky acronym for electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. You really feel the wind up here. In the near future, an entire industry hopes to have these electric vehicles available so you can soar over bumper-to-bumper traffic, and some for about the cost of an Uber. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. 
It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Good evening, I'm Anderson Cooper. Welcome to 60 Minutes Presents. Tonight, a look toward the future, on the earth, above it, and even beyond it. We'll visit a futuristic factory near Boston where robots learn to dance and see how close we are to a day when electric air taxis soar above traffic on your daily commute. But we begin in a place that's far out of this world. It's been nearly two years since the tiny helicopter Ingenuity and the one-ton rover Perseverance left planet Earth, and they've come a very long way since then. In February last year, they landed in a hazardous and previously unexplored part of Mars called the Jezero Crater, where Perseverance is looking for signs of ancient life. Two months after landing, Ingenuity disconnected from Perseverance's belly and made history, performing the first flights ever in the atmosphere of another planet. It's hard to imagine, but worth remembering as you watch this story we first reported last year, that this all happened millions of miles away in outer space. Last year on April 6, in this Martian crater 170 million miles from Earth, Perseverance posed for a selfie with Ingenuity, the little helicopter it had just dropped off. Two weeks later, the rover's cameras recorded Ingenuity's historic first flight, hovering 10 feet off the ground for 30 seconds. It may not look like much, but for those who worked so long to make it happen, it was a reason to rejoice. Project manager Mimi Ong led the team at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California that's been working on Ingenuity for six years. How hard is it to fly a helicopter on Mars? Very, very, very hard. <laughs> <laughs> we really, uh, truly started with the question of, is it possible? Uh, a lot of people thought it, it could not be done. Because it's really counterintuitive. I mean, you need atmosphere the, for the blades to push atmosphere to get lived. The atmosphere on Mars is completely and different than the world. The atmosphere at Mars is so thin. I mean, the room we're in, right, it's compared to that, it was 1% of the atmospheric density over there. So the question of really, can you generate enough lift, you know, to really build, to lift up anything, that was the fundamental question. In subsequent flight, ingenuity has gone higher and farther traveling more than four miles in all over the surface of Mars. It is a triumph, not only for NASA, but for its partners in the private sector who help make various parts of the helicopter. Don't let it go, don't freak out. Matt Keenan has a history of making unusual things that can fly. He's an engineer at a company called AeroVironment, which produces drones for military and civilian use. I mean, so, that's incredible. Ten years ago, for a military research project, Keenan and his team created this robotic hummingbird, which has a tiny camera on board. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> there it is. Oh, my God, that's amazing. Keenan and engineer Ben Pippenberg led the AeroVironment team that created Ingenuity's rotors, motors, and landing gear. Why was this so challenging? because it has to be a spacecraft as well as an aircraft. Um, and, and flying it as, a, as an aircraft on Mars is pretty challenging because of the density of the air that's similar to about Earth at 100,000 feet. How do you go about it? Well, so building everything extremely lightweight is uh, 
really, really critical. The helicopter's blades, for example, are made of a styrofoam-like material coated with carbon fiber. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're stiff and strong. Get a sense of how oh my lightweight gosh. and stiff that is. I mean, it's nothing. Yeah, yeah. it weighs nothing. But incredibly light. Here we go, taking off. This is the first time they've shown an outsider this version of Ingenuity, which they plan to use for education and research. They call it Terry. A lift off. Here on Earth, Terry's blades are spinning at about 400 revolutions per minute. On Mars, in the thin atmosphere, they'd have to spin six times faster to generate the same lift. And then, and then land. Ingenuity costs $85 million to build and operate. Terry, a lot less, but it's still nerve-wracking to be handed its controls. All right, go ahead. You've got it. Slide it right. You can push it all the way to the right if you want. Slide left. Wow. I'll bring it up a little bit. Now stop. The joysticks we use to fly Terry are of no use on Mars. Radio signals take too long to get there. All right, let me take over now. I've okay. switched you out. And Phew. we'll go back to the... <laughs> Even someone as good at flying drones and hummingbirds as Matt Keenan couldn't fly a helicopter on Mars. Here's what happened in 2014 in a test chamber that replicated the atmosphere on Mars when Keenan tried to use a joystick to fly an early version of Ingenuity. Surprise! Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, All right. So, so much for that vehicle. So this very quick demonstration, is it should you, a human being, can't respond quickly enough to control it. Exactly. So engineers at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory equipped Ingenuity with a computerized system that allows it to stabilize itself and navigate on its own. In 2016, the new system aced the chamber test. The blades are being commanded, you know, four or five hundred times per second. They proved it could fly, but Ingenuity still had to weigh under four pounds and fit in the belly of Perseverance. Five. Five. Four. Engine ignition. Two. One. And it had to be tough enough to survive the journey to Mars. And liftoff. On July 30th, 2020, Perseverance and Ingenuity took off from Cape Canaveral. Nearly seven months later, as this simulation shows, the spacecraft's heat shield hit the Martian atmosphere, going 12,000 miles per hour. Perseverance ready to execute entry, descent, and landing on her own. As he sat in the control room, Al Chen, the leader of the landing team, had absolutely no control. Radio signals would take about 11 minutes to travel from Earth to Mars. The spacecraft was pre-programmed to descend, maneuver, and pick a landing site on its own. All the work his colleagues hoped to do on Mars would be impossible if his part of the mission failed. How long have you been working on this mission? Coming up on nine years or so. Really? That's a lot of work for seven minutes of yep, nine, nine years of work, seven minutes of terror. It's done if the parachute doesn't work. That's right. You know, no one wants to be that, uh, the guy that drops the baton. No landing by a spacecraft has ever been recorded as well as this one. There were six cameras capturing it all from different angles. The parachute deployed, then the heat shield fell away like a lens cap, and Perseverance got its first look at the ground. This is not a simulation. This is what it looks like to parachute onto Mars. How fast is it moving at this point? Yeah, we're still going about 350 miles an hour and still slowing down. So it looks gentle here, yeah. but in fact, you're, it's falling at more than 300 miles an hour. That's right. We're heading straight down at, uh, at near race car speeds. Below lay a series of safe landing spots, but the wind was blowing the spacecraft towards more treacherous territory to the east. And Perseverance sent a message to Earth 
saying the thrusters it needed to slow down might not be working properly. So you get a reading saying the jets that are going to help it right. slow down and control the landing, that they're not working. The so what do you power. do? Nothing you can do, right? Everything's already happened. That's the mind-bending part of this, right? You are sweating now. You yeah, exactly. I'm right it. back there again. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Altitude of about 300 meters. To Al Chen's relief, Perseverance's computerized landing system did what it was designed to do. It found a suitable landing spot even in rocky terrain. And despite the warning, the thrusters worked. You can see them kicking up dust as they fire to slow the spacecraft down. Skycrane maneuver has started. The descent stage, known as the Skycrane, lowered Perseverance to the ground. It hovered for a moment, then flew off to crash a safe distance away. And there goes the descent wow. stage. Touchdown confirmed. Perseverance safely on the surface of Mars. So at that point, big sigh of relief. Um, you know, I almost uh, collapsed over this console. For two months after the landing on the Red Planet, a team of engineers, programmers, and scientists here on Earth were living on Mars time. It's their job to monitor the rover's health and tell it where to go and how to search for signs of life. While Perseverance slept to conserve energy during the freezing Martian nights, the team on Earth analyzed the photographs and instrument readings it had sent back. They then prepared a list of things for it to do the following morning when it woke up. And so it's just after midnight on Mars. The vehicle's asleep. Project manager Matt Wallace explained that a day on Mars is 40 minutes longer than on Earth. The team's schedule was constantly changing. So all the people here are, are Mars night shift workers. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to think of it, yeah. But I mean, working night shift is tough enough, but this is a night shift that's constantly shifting. Constantly moving, yeah. that's right, yeah. On Perseverance's fourth day on Mars, it swiveled the powerful camera on its mast and took a look around. A space enthusiast named Sean Doran put the images together, set them to music, and posted the movie on YouTube. Even one of the top scientists on the project was moved when he saw it. You know, I went and got a beer and watched this thing scroll by. And, and that, mo that was the moment when I felt like I was there. Ken Farley leads the science team that will direct Perseverance through the Jezero Crater. It's an area that scientists have long wanted to search for signs of ancient life that may be hidden in the rocks. The oldest evidence of life on Earth is about three and a half billion years old. Those rocks were deposited in a shallow sea. This crater that you see here was a lake three and a half billion years ago. So we are looking at the same environment and the same time period on two different planets. And if it's determined, however long in the future, that no, there was not ever life, what does that mean? The place where Perseverance landed here in Jezero Crater uh, is the most habitable time period on Mars and the most habitable environment that we know about. This is, this is as good as it gets, at least with our current understanding of what Mars has to offer. And if we don't find life here, it does make us worry that perhaps it doesn't exist anywhere. Perseverance hadn't strayed far from its landing site when its telescopic camera spotted a large number of boulders that scientist Ken Farley says he didn't expect to see in the middle of an ancient lake. So this has surprised you? Absolutely, yeah. So what did those boulders tell you? The, the most reasonable interpretation is a flood. You don't have fast-flowing water out in the middle of the lake. You get fast-flowing water in a river. And so what that's telling us is there was a river that was capable of transporting boulders 
that were this big. So what, the lake would have gone down perhaps, and then later on there was a flood? Yeah, exactly. Perseverance was supposed to leave Ingenuity behind after a 30-day demonstration of its flying ability. But NASA officials decided to keep the duo together longer to explore how rovers and helicopters might work together in the future. The fastest the Perseverance was designed to travel is a tenth of a mile per hour. Ingenuity has already gone 120 times faster, according to project manager Mimi Ong. Adding an aerial vehicle, a flying vehicle for space exploration will be game-changing. It frees you in a way. Absolutely, yes. So a flying vehicle, a rotorcraft would allow us to get to places we simply can't access today, like sites of steep cliffs, you know, inside deep crevices. After Perseverance explored the floor of Jezero Crater, it headed to what's believed to be the remnant of an ancient river delta, where billions of years ago conditions should have been ripe for microorganisms to exist. As this simulation shows, the rover's robotic arm can collect about 40 core samples of rock that'll be sealed in special tubes and left on the planet's surface. NASA plans to send another mission to Mars to retrieve the tubes and bring them back to Earth. In about 10 years, Ken Farley says, scientists examining those samples may be confronted with a new and perplexing question. How do you look for life that may not be life as you know it? We've never had to do that before. We've never had to actually ask the question. Is there a form of life that we can't even conceive of? Yeah, we're going to have to conceive of it. I think that's the whole point of this. We're going to have to start conceiving of life as we don't know it. If all goes according to plan, Perseverance will be making tracks on Mars for years to come. Since it's carrying the first working audio microphones on the Red Planet, we'll leave you with what it sounds like as the one-ton rover slowly moves across the vast, lonely expanses of Mars. Earlier this year, NASA and the European Space Agency agreed on a plan to send three new spacecraft to Mars in 2027 and 2028. Their mission would be to retrieve the samples Perseverance is collecting on the Red Planet and bring them back to Earth. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Boston Dynamics is a cutting-edge robotics company that spent decades behind closed doors making robots that move in ways we've only seen in science fiction films. They occasionally release videos on YouTube of their lifelike machines spinning, somersaulting, or sprinting, which are greeted with fascination and fear. As we first told you last year, we'd been trying without any luck to get into Boston Dynamics' workshop for years. 
and in March of 2021, they finally agreed to let us in. So we went to Massachusetts to see how they make robots do the unimaginable. From the outside, Boston Dynamics headquarters looks pretty normal. Inside, however, it's anything but. If Willy Wonka made robots, his workshop might look something like this. There are robots in corridors, offices, and kennels. They trot and dance and whirl. And the 250 or so human roboticists who build and often break them barely bat an eye. That is Atlas, the most human-looking robot they've ever made. It's nearly five feet tall, 175 pounds, and is programmed to run, leap, and spin like an automated acrobat. Wow. Mark Raybird, the founder and chairman of Boston Dynamics, doesn't like to play favorites, but definitely has a soft spot for Atlas. So here's a little bit of a jump. I mean, that's incredible. <laughs> Atlas isn't doing all this on its own. Technician Brian Hollingsworth is steering it with this remote control. But the robot's software allows it to make other key decisions autonomously. So really the robot is you know, doing incredible. all its own balance, all its own control. Brian's just steering it, telling it what speed and direction. Its computers are adjusting how the legs are placed and what forces it's applying in order to keep it uh, balanced. Atlas balances with the help of sensors, as well as a gyroscope and three onboard computers. It was definitely built to be pushed around. Good, push it a little bit more. It's just trying to keep its balance. You know, just like you will if I push you. Uh. And you can push it in any direction. You can push it from the side. Making machines that can stay upright on their own and move through the world with the ease of an animal or human has been an obsession of Mark Raybert's for 40 years. The space of time you've been working in is nothing compared to the time it's taken for animals and humans to develop. Some people look at me and say, oh, Raybert, you've been stuck on this problem for 40 years. Animals are amazingly good, and people, at, um, at what they do. You know, we're so agile, we're so versatile. We really haven't achieved what humans can do yet, but I think, I think we can. Raybert isn't making it easy for himself. He's given most of his robots legs. Why focus on, on legs? I would think wheels would be easier. Yeah, wheels and tracks are great if you have a prepared surface, like a road or even a dirt road. But people and animals can go anywhere on Earth uh, using their legs. And so that, you know, that was the inspiration. Ready? One, two. Some of the first contraptions he built in the early 1980s bounced around on what looked like pogo sticks. They appeared in this documentary when Raybert was a pioneering professor of robotics and computer science at Carnegie Mellon. He founded Boston Dynamics in 1992, and with CEO Robert Plater, has been working for decades to perfect how robots move. They developed this robot called Big Dog for the military, as well as this larger pack mule that could carry 400 pounds on its back. Experimenting with speed, they got this cheetah-like robot to run nearly 30 miles an hour. None of these made it out of the prototype phase, but they did lead to this. It's called Spy. Boston Dynamics made it not knowing exactly how it would be used, but the inspiration for it isn't hard to figure out. So Spot is a omnidirectional robot, so I can go forwards and backwards. This is crazy. <laughs> this is the real benefit of legs. Uh, legs give you that capability. That's Robert Plater, the CEO. 
and Hannah Rossi, a technician who works on spot. I'm not doing anything special to let it walk over those rocks. There you go. The controls are easier to use than you might expect. Does it have to come in straight You don't on? have to be perfect about it. Drive it close to wherever you want to go, and the robot will do the rest. Wow. In some ways, it's like driving a very sophisticated remote control car. What makes it different? Spot is really smart about its own locomotion. It deals with all the details about how to place my feet, what gait to use, how to manage my body, so that all you have to tell it is the direction they go to. And in some cases, you don't even have to do that. When signaled, Spot can take itself off its charging station and go for a walk on its own, as long as it's pre-programmed with the route. It uses five 3D cameras to map its surroundings and avoid obstacles. I mean, it is like something... Atlas has a similar technology. While we were talking in front of Atlas, this is how it saw us. This is inside Atlas's brain, and it shows its perception system. So what looks like a flashlight is really the data that's coming back from its cameras. And it, you see the white rectangles. That means it's identifying a place that it could step. And then once it identifies it, it attaches those footsteps to it, and it says, okay, I'm going to try and step there. And then it adjusts its mechanics so that it actually hits those places when it's uh, running. All of that happens in a matter of milliseconds. And so it's going to use that vision to adjust itself as it goes running over these blocks. Atlas costs tens of millions of dollars to develop, but it's not for sale. It's used purely for research and development. But Spot is on the market. More than 800 are out in the world. They sell for about $75,000 a piece. Accessories cost extra. Some Spots work at utility companies using mounted cameras to check on equipment. Others monitor construction sites. And several police departments have tried them out to assist with investigations. Let's talk about the, the fear factor. When you post a video of Atlas or Spot doing something, a ton of people are amazed by it and think it's great, and there's a lot of people who think this is terrifying. The rogue robot story is a powerful story, and it's been told for a hundred years, but it's fiction. Robots don't have agency. They don't make up their own minds about what their tasks are. They operate within a narrow bound of their programming. It is easy to project human qualities onto these machines. I think people do attribute uh, to our robots much more than they should because, you know, they haven't seen machines move like this before. And so they, they want to project intelligence and emotion onto that in ways that are fiction. In other words, these robots still have a long way to go. I mean, it's not C-3PO. It, it's not a yeah. thinking... So let me tell you about that. There's a cognitive intelligence and an athletic intelligence. You know, cognitive intelligence is making plans, making decisions, uh, reasoning, and things like that. It's not doing that. It's mostly doing athletic intelligence, which is managing its body, its posture, its energetics. If you told it to travel in a circle in the room, it can go through the sequence of steps. But if you ask it to uh, go find me a soda, it's, it's not doing anything like that. Oh, no. Just picking an item off the floor can sometimes be a struggle for Spot. Enabling it to open a door has taken years of programming and practice. And a human has to tell it where the hinges are. 
each time we add some new capability and we feel like we've got it to a decent point, that's when you push it to failure to figure out, you know, how good of a job you've really done. Kevin Blankesbohr is one of the lead engineers here, but at times he prefers a very low-tech approach to testing robots. You're pretty tough on robots. We think of that as, as just another way to push them out of their comfort zone. Failure is a big part of the process. When trying something new, robots, like humans, don't get it right every time. There might be dozens of crashes for every one success. How often do you break a robot? We break them all the time. I mean, it's part of our culture. We have a motto, build it, break it, fix it. To do that, Boston Dynamics has recruited roboticists with diverse backgrounds. There's plenty of PhDs, but also bike builders and race car mechanics. Bill Washburn is part of that pit crew. They all look pretty dinged up. Yeah. How often do these get need to get repaired? The biggest kind of failures for me are like the bottom part of the robot breaks off of the top part of the robot. <laughs> Seems like, like a big, big and failure. And the hydraulic uh-huh. hoses are the only thing holding it together. Recently, Raybird and his team decided to push their robots in a way they never had before. We spent at least six months, maybe eight, just preparing for what we were going to do. And then we started to get the technical teams working on the behavior. The behavior was dancing. All their robots got in on the act. The movements were cutting edge, but the music and the mashed potato were definitely old school. There are some people who see that and say, that can't be real. Nothing's more gratifying than hearing that. What's the point in proving that the robot can do the mashed potato? This process of you know doing new things with the robots lets you generate new tools, new approaches, new understanding of the problem uh, that takes you forward. But man, isn't it just fun? But I mean, it's, it costs a lot of money. It took 18 months of your time. I think it was worth it. <laughs> Whether it'll be worth it to Boston Dynamics' latest owners is less clear. A lot of detail. The South Korean carmaker Hyundai has purchased a majority stake for nearly a billion dollars. It's Boston Dynamics' third owner in nine years. There's pressure to turn their research into revenue. And Boston Dynamics hopes this new robot will help. It's called Stretch, and it went on sale earlier this year. This was the first time they'd shown it publicly. Warehouse is is really the next frontier for robotics. Stretch may not be that exciting to look at, but it's built with a definite purpose in mind. It's got a seven-foot arm, and they say it can move 800 boxes an hour in a warehouse and work for up to 16 hours without a break. Unlike many industrial robots that sit in one place, Stretch is designed to move around. You can drive it around with a joystick, and at times that's the easiest way to get it set up. But once it's ready to go in a truck and unload it, you hit go, and from there on it's autonomous. And it'll keep finding boxes and moving them until it's all the way through. This generation of robots is going to be different. They're going to work amongst us. They're going to work next to us in ways where we help them, but they also take some of the burden from us. The more robots are integrated into the workforce, the more jobs would be taken away. At the same time, you're creating a new industry. We envision a job we, we, we like to call the robot wrangler. He'll launch and manage five to ten robots at a time. 
and sort of uh, keep them all working. Is there a robot you've always dreamt of making that you haven't <laughs> been able to do yet? A car with an active suspension, essentially legs, like, like a roller skating robot. And a robot like that, you know, could go anywhere on Earth. That's one thing that uh, maybe we'll do at some point. But, you know, really the sky's the limit. There's, there's all kinds of things we can and will do. As with so many things Boston Dynamics does, it's hard to imagine how that would work. But then again, who'd have thought a bunch of metal machines would one day show us all how to do the mashed potato? Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. If you've ever had the fantasy of soaring over bumper-to-bumper traffic in a flying vehicle, that may be possible sooner than you think. Not with a flying car, but with a battery-powered aircraft called an eVTOL a clunky acronym for Electric Vertical Takeoff and Landing Vehicle. As we first reported in April, dozens of companies are spending billions of dollars to make eVTOLs that will operate like air taxis, taking off and landing from what are called vertiports on the tops of buildings, parking garages, or helipads in congested cities. eVTOLs promise a faster, safer, and greener mode of transportation, potentially changing the way we work and live. Sound too good to be true? We went for a joyride to find out. I will arm the aircraft if you are ready. Yeah, totally. Confirm clear above. If this looks like an oversized drone I'm about to take off in, that's pretty much what it is. Breaking ground right there. It's a single-seat eVTOL called Hexa, powered by 18 propellers, each with its own battery. No jet fuel required. You are in control. Onboard computers automatically adjust for altitude and wind. You can really feel the wind up here. So all I had to do was use a joystick to control Hexa's movement and speed. It took about 30 minutes of pre-flight training to get the hang of it. Use that yaw to rotate 90 degrees. Wonderful. Hexa is still in its testing phase, so I had to stay close to Chief Pilot Jace McCown and his ground crew. They say it's flown up to 195 feet in the air at 24 miles per hour. Whenever you're ready, you can come back to home. The batteries last up to 15 minutes. I was going to try okay. to land over the camera. Yeah, absolutely. To land, I maneuvered Hexa into position, pressed a button, and the computers did the rest. Right there, you are on the ground, and the props are spinning down. That is cool. <laughs> I can't stop laughing. Piece of cake, that right? was awesome. Is it that fun? is so much fun. Yes. Wow. 
I so just want to like take off with it. I know. Matt Chasen is CEO of Austin-based Lyft Aircraft, which makes Hexa. He envisions a future where it's used by commuters to skip rush hour traffic. You can fly 10 miles in 10 minutes instead of spending over an hour on the roads during rush hour congestion. Would it be something that an individual then in the future owns and flies from their house to somewhere? We don't see individual ownership as very practical. These are, these are very expensive aircraft. We see putting fleets of aircraft at locations where we provide maintenance, we provide training, and people can come in and basically pay per flight. But that's still a long way off. Federal, state, and local regulators, not to mention the nation's airspace, aren't ready for hundreds of thousands of commuters piloting their own EV tolls in the skies over congested cities. So to give people a taste of the future now, Chasen designed Hexa as an ultralight vehicle, which means it doesn't have to go through the Federal Aviation Administration's complex certification process, but also can't fly over populated areas. Chasen plans to start offering rides to paying customers for $250 by the end of this year. The initial market you see is essentially joy rides for people. Yeah, I think there's a huge market for people to just experience uh, the thrill and joy of flight. Around the world, all kinds of EV tolls are being developed. Cargo carriers, air ambulances, and a whole lot of air taxis. Some with a pilot, some without. The Air Force is investing, so is Airbus and American Airlines. And dozens of companies are already working with the FAA. It's not the flying cars that science fiction movies anticipated. No, but when you think about it, I, I look back over the arc of my own career, having been a pilot for 42 years, and I'm just amazed by the amount of innovation that has taken place. Billy Nolan was head of safety for the FAA before being named acting administrator in March. How difficult a certification process is there? Because there's a lot of moving parts to this. First, we have to certify the design of the, of the aircraft itself. And then we look at how it will operate. Is it piloted? Is it autonomous? We look at where it will operate. So that means how do we put it within our nation's airspace? So once it's met that safety threshold, and only until it's met that safety threshold, will we be, be prepared to certify it. Some eVTOL companies are well on their way. We flew in a gas-guzzling helicopter with one of the front-runners in this air taxi arms race, Joe Ben Bevert, CEO of Joby Aviation. He took us to this remote facility in California where he was testing his eVTOL Joby aircraft. As we landed, it felt like the old guard meeting the new. Obviously, it's a combination of a helicopter and a plane. Exactly. So it can take off like a helicopter, but it flies with the efficiency of an airplane. Bevert has been working on the Joby for more than a decade. It has six propellers and four batteries in its wings and will operate as an air taxi, carrying a pilot and four passengers. He says it can fly 150 miles on a single charge and has a top speed of around 200 miles an hour. Why this design? So vertical takeoff is important so we can take you to where you want to go. Right? We don't need a huge runway. And then with the wing, it gives you the efficiency to fly far and to fly fast. Pilot, you're cleared. Flight box alpha blow. Because it's still being tested, the Joby was piloted remotely by a nearby ground crew. Launch for flight. When they fired up the motors, unlike a helicopter, the Joby didn't need time to warm up. It took off in about 20 seconds. That's it? That's really quiet. 
We wanted this to sound more like the wind in the trees than the wop-wop of a helicopter. Noise levels are a critical issue since eVTOLs are meant to take off and land near where people work and live. This is below the background noise level of many cities. You know, I go around with my decibel meter on my phone and, uh, like, measure sound levels. <laughs> and, that's what you've been doing it, for 10 years? Exactly, because we needed to make sure that the aircraft was going to be quiet enough. Bevert studied mechanical engineering at Stanford, where he invented this popular flexible camera tripod and later created a company that made flying wind turbines. But the Joby had remained an elusive dream. There were definitely skeptics, uh, uh-huh. even, you know, good friends of mine who didn't believe that you could make this with batteries and electric propulsion. The battery technology just wasn't there, it wouldn't work. Yeah. Bevert hired John Wagner away from Tesla, where he helped develop the car's revolutionary batteries. At Joby, he figured out a way to make the batteries lighter, but still powerful enough to get the two-ton eVTOL off the ground. You had to play to the strengths of battery power and the strengths of electric motors. So a typical aircraft might have one big motor, but we can have six motors distributed throughout the aircraft and in that way operate in a much more efficient manner. The weight of everything must be the most important thing. Absolutely. So how do you make a plane as light as possible? You essentially have to engineer every piece of it. The outside of the Joby is made with layers of lightweight carbon fiber. The batteries, as well as computers, electronics, and motors, are constructed under John Wagner's watch. And his team shakes, bakes, and spins them to ensure they'll meet the FAA's rigorous safety standards. They have to certify the aircraft as being safe and capable of flying to their standards. They also have to certify the production of all the parts of it. Exactly, and the operation, the pilot training, the maintenance uh, steps, every facet is heavily regulated. All this costs a lot of money. Toyota has invested about $400 million in Joby, and Bevert took the company public last year. I think the texture is good. Billionaire Paul Shiara, co-founder of the website Pinterest, has also put in a small fortune. He's Joby's executive chairman and says they'll launch in up to three cities and that passengers will eventually end up paying around 3 to $4 a mile to fly, a little more than an average Uber ride. Can you just take me through as a passenger what it looks like? I want to get to JFK Airport. It's bumper-to-bumper traffic. What do I do? Take out your phone, pull out an app, and with one click, you're booking the whole trip. So a car is coming to wherever you are in Manhattan. It's taking you to the takeoff and landing location, the Vertiport, and you're hopping in your Joby, and it's flying you to your final destination. Now maybe there's a car at the other end, or you're just walking to the tail end. If people are taking cars to and from Vertiports, doesn't that just add to congestion? If we're able to you know, take out 80% of the miles um, that people might be traveling and move those miles from congested roads to the air, I think that's going to have an impact. But just a few weeks after we saw this Joby aircraft fly, it crashed in February due to what federal investigators called a component failure. No one was hurt, but the eVTOL was totaled. Bevert says that's all part of the testing process and is as optimistic now as he was when we interviewed him. How far are you from getting the first Joby in the sky with passengers? So we are launching our service in 2024. You think you can do it that quickly? Yes. There have been, though, a lot of companies that have said, oh, we're going to do this in two years, and then it doesn't happen. We're very confident. There's a lot of confidence over at Whisk Aero as well, though the VTOL they're developing will be even more complicated to bring to market 
because it's fully autonomous. There'll be passengers, but no pilot on board. You're not just figuring out an electric vehicle, you're figuring out a fully autonomous flying That's right. vehicle. That's right. We're going for it. <laughs> <laughs> you and I talked about that. CEO Gary Geisen says they're on track to spend about $2 billion. The company is bankrolled by Boeing and Google co-founder Larry Page. They've been testing the technology for the last eight years. Control Zap, in position for liftoff. So how many test flights have you actually done? So close, close to 1,600 test flights without, you know, knock on wood, without an incident. Selecting liftoff now. We watched one of those test flights in Hollister, California. A team of engineers about half a mile away started the VTOL with the click of a mouse. The entire route was pre-programmed. Why autonomous? Yeah. Why go this route? So we're going straight to self-flying uh, several reasons. One, it's safer. Safer, he says, because most plane accidents involve human error. Much of commercial aviation is already automated, and Geisen sees the entire eVTOL industry going that way eventually. He's determined to get there first. We do it primarily from a safety perspective, but also scale. So if you don't have a pilot in the aircraft, it's less expensive. You don't have to do pilot training. Uh, you're flying for passengers. Um, we can charge less. We don't want this to be a premium helicopter-like service. We want this to be a service that's affordable to the masses. There is a hurdle psychologically for people to get into an aircraft that does not have a human at the control. Of course. And so what we're trying to do with that is each passenger can be in uh, verbal communication with the ground. They can be talking to a pilot whenever they want to. So it's all designed to provide comfort. It will take time. This isn't going to happen overnight. Geisen wants to launch WIST's four-seater air taxi service in the world's 20 busiest cities within the next decade. Wheels down. You don't give a date of when you think you'll be operational? Yeah, you know why we don't do that? Because we are not in control of that part. The FAA is, uh, in Europe it's called EASA, they're in charge. So when they certify aircraft to fly, that's when you fly. The FAA won't say when an autonomous eVTOL might be certified, but acting administrator Billy Nolan told us hailing a piloted air taxi by 2024 is well within the realm of possibility. The challenge for us is to make sure that innovation doesn't come at the expense of safety. But clearly we are seeing the emergence of uh, something that's fantastic, I think. This is real. I mean, this is no longer just the stuff of fantasy. We want to be very careful. We want to be very measured. But you're absolutely right. This is real and this is happening. We've come a long way from where we were just, you know, a mere decade ago. I'm Anderson Cooper. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Some puzzles are hard to solve. Others are hard to prove. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts. 
Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.